0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams.
1: And I'm Kirk McElhern.
0: Hello, and thank you for letting us into your life today. This is episode number 75 of The Next Track. You know, if you want more of us in your life... We've got 74 back episodes that you can check out at thenexttrack.com. That's where all the show notes for each episodes are. And, of course, you can leave comments as well. So, Doug, have you watched any good movies lately? You know, in general, I haven't. Um, It seems to me that with with fewer quality movies being released, I'm using my AV time uh, to... Not so much watch movies as just spend more time with my music collection. So I've been listening to music more than I've been watching movies. Well, there's a compromise.
1: You could watch movies about music. And we talked about this in episode 70. We did the first of what will eventually be a three-part series about movies about music. And the first one was about fiction. And I thought today we'd talk about documentaries because this is a compromise. You can watch something on TV, a movie, or or a series in some cases, and it's about music. And you can learn something. You can learn something. And if you're really interested in a particular band and their history, you'll get some
0: interesting tidbits. You might see some good old footage. There'll be interviews. You know, there's, there's really two kinds of documentaries that we'll be talking about. And that's there's the sort of what I would think of as the BBC documentary, where they grab a lot of archival footage they get some archival interviews, or maybe even new interviews, and they have a narrator and they just go back and tell the story. And those are, those are fascinating documentaries. And then there's another kind of documentary where the, the filmmakers are there contemporaneously. And the final product is, the story is told, not so much through a narration and a direction from, from interviews, but just by seeing what happened over a period of time.
1: Yeah. In fact, I thought I would start by talking about a BBC documentary that I saw when it was first broadcast a couple years ago. It was after I moved to the UK. It's called Synth Britannia. I'll include a link in the show notes to this on YouTube where you can actually watch the whole thing. It starts in the mid-70s, the late 70s, when synthesizers became a really important instrument in music. And it started with some of the early synthesizers that were more for I think they even show Brian Eno playing with Roxy Music. You know, he had those synthesizers where he just twisted the knobs going, woo, woo, woo. And then it got into the the synthesizer that became a musical instrument and things like Kraftwerk and Cabaret Voltaire and Human League and John Fox. And then it went on to show how synthesizers became a sort of subgenre of new wave music. Depeche Mode, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, soft cell, and, and all of that. And it's very well done. It's an hour and a half long, which is longer than most of the BBC documentaries. There are lots of interviews with people and lots of footage from back then. And some of the footage is the equivalent of music videos from the late 70s, like Top of the Pops performances, and some of them are live. But it was really fascinating to see the different people who brought these early synthesizers in, and, and we're talking about the Moog, the one with patch cables and, and, and not with really keyboards like we have now.
0: It really is not only a, a history of the synthesizer as instrument, but also how it found its way into DIY and pop and dance music. Human League is a great example. They started out as a sort of craftwork inspired techno band, and then they gradually morphed into a more synthetic pop sound, which paralleled the development of simpler keyboards and MIDI and sequencing and drum machines and stuff like that. Human League was there for that whole evolution. Now, you mentioned a few, but there are many more bands covered in Synth Britannia. It's really a a great show. And that documentary reminded me of another British series called Rock Family Trees. Uh, They're narrated by John Peel, and each one covers—well, they they take a band or a geographic area or a genre— and they literally map out the relationships between the musicians as they start a band, quit a band to start another band, morph into another band. And eventually this matrix takes shape and it it can be quite expansive. And there's one on British R&B, on the Mersey Sound. There's one on the Manchester music scene, Birmingham music scene. I'll
1: link to the BBC's website. There were two seasons, or series as they call them, of six episodes One of them is about the prog rock years. And in episode number 58, we had Dave Weigel on the show talking about his book, The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prog Rock. And we discussed a little bit how the musicians there was a sort of incestuous relationship as the musicians would go from one band to another and then bands would break up and reform. But I remember the rock family trees from back in the 70s. Were they published in Rolling Stone? These were actual family trees and and there are books of these.
0: The original rock family trees were were actually published in Rolling Stone and I think their Rolling Stone history of rock and roll also contained these graphics, these, uh, what would you call them, uh, flow charts. Well,
1: they're kind of like family trees, actually, genealogical charts. Except they have a lot of explanation. I'll link to one of them on Amazon. I'm looking at the the Look Inside thing right now, and you can see that it starts out with a bunch of text. And then under each band, you get some explanations of how they formed and when they were together. And you can see how they, they go back and forth. I remember poring over these things back in the day because this is how I would discover new bands. You like this band, and where did those musicians go? And so you check out that other band.
0: They cover a lot of ground quickly and they can either go vertical or horizontal. They can either follow, you know, bands that were forming contemporaneously or a single band as it, you know, changed over the years. One of my favorite episodes is the one on Fleetwood Mac. I mean, Fleetwood Mac has gone through a lot of personnel changes from the original Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, which was a straight ahead Chicago blues influenced R&B band to the current configuration as, of course, world famous super duper pop band. So, If you get a chance, definitely check out Rock Family Trees. They're a lot of fun.
1: One documentary that I really liked was the Frank Sinatra documentary, All or Nothing at All. It was on HBO in the States. It was on either Netflix or Amazon Prime Video here. I'm looking on the HBO website. It doesn't say how long it was. I think it was four or five hours or something like that. It was relatively long. It was um, made by Alex Gibney, who's got a particular documentary style. And it was, to me, this is the classic music documentary. You've got narrative, you've got interviews, and you've got live footage. Some of the live footage is concerts, some maybe was interviews at the time. But this this is it covers all the styles of documentary scenes. And some of these are really good, and, and I'll mention a few later, but sometimes they just bounce from one thing to another. And and this one worked well because you got a certain rhythm as you went on. And, and when it's four hours long or five hours long, you're not going to watch it in one sitting unless you're really obsessed. And you need that rhythm. You need that. You need something to keep you going from one episode to the next. And, and Sinatra, of course, is interesting because he came up, he went down, and then he came back up again. So you've got that sort of sine wave through his career that's interesting to follow.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a very good documentary. And I don't know if you want to jump to this right away, but you talk about flow in a documentary and one of the things that i did not like about long strange trip the recent documentary about the grateful dead is that it it did tend to jump around and it tended to focus on things that i didn't think were worthy of knowing about the grateful dead i mean there was a lot of uh there was a lot of stuff on jerry that that was bad jerry um you know i wanted to hear about his musical exploits and things like that and they didn't really go into that so much and they didn't spend a lot of time with other members of the band, except for Pigpen, they wanted to talk about his horrible life. And they wanted to talk about Jerry's horrible uh, um, heroin addiction. And, but they didn't spend a lot of time talking about the music as much. Early on, they did. And that's I really enjoyed the first couple of episodes of Long Strange Trip. But not being a dead fan and wanting to learn more about what they were like, the episode seemed to dwell on uh, some of the more fantastic uh, things about the band, rather than the mundane, interesting things.
1: I remember when it came out, and we were talking shortly after it was released, and I had watched the whole thing on the weekend, and you had watched the first two episodes, and you said to me, "I don't remember what you had done that weekend that had put you in a state of mind to watch this," but you said, "Oh yeah, I watched this Grateful Dead documentary." And I was like, really? And you said, yeah, the
0: first two episodes are really good. I said, okay, wait. Yeah, those are facts. Um, The first two episodes are really good. The first three, even. Yeah, even even three. But then after a while, it starts to get very dark. And uh, I, I didn't care for it that
1: much. Well, one of the problems was that there were some interviews with people that just went on too long. I think it was the Sam Cutler interview in like the fifth or sixth episode that went on for like 15 minutes, and and they end up with him sitting in the back of his van someplace by the East River in New York, and it it was just rambling. It was really self-promotion for Sam Cutler, and I don't know why. Well,
0: you know, Sam Cutler, if you don't know, was a famous tour manager in the 70s. He worked for the Rolling Stones, he worked for the Grateful Dead, and now apparently he lives out of a van outside of the East River in New York. (laughs) So, you know, and listening to him speak from, from that location didn't really add a lot of credence to what he had to say. Uh, you know, you didn't get the impression. I mean, it sounded like what he was saying was truthful, but on the other hand, it was tough to say because here he is obviously homeless. Uh, and, uh, I mean, maybe that was one of the ironies we were supposed to pick up on in the documentary. I don't know. I didn't really, it wasn't that deliberate. It seemed to me.
1: There was also a thing where Bob Weir and his wife said, oh, let's go see Robert Hunter. And so they show them driving along in the car and they show them pulling up to a house. And then there's this like weird video of Robert Hunter that was shot maybe 20 years ago. And you never see Robert Hunter because he's he's not a recluse, but he doesn't really like to be interviewed. And that was just weird. That that should have been cut out.
0: I'm I'm sure a lot of Grateful Dead fans like it. I mean it had a lot of unseen footage and unheard music and recordings, so which I'm sure that part of was satisfying. Well, I'm a dead fan and, and I'm pretty critical. Well, what I mean is of it. What I mean is I'm sure there was something on some level there's enough information there because it's about your favorite band and it's good enough. An example of that would be the Eagles. The Eagles documentary uh, that was also on Netflix. What's it called? Um, History of the Eagles. Right, History of the Eagles, and it's on Netflix, right?
1: It's also produced by Alex Gibney.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Gee, he pops up a lot in music documentaries. Yeah, Um, it's it's a long, it's a single uh, piece. Uh, so it's not broken down into episodes, but it is somewhat episodic and a little disjointed. I, I did feel that it was disjointed, but it didn't bother me. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm trying to get at is it, you didn't feel like you were jumping from major topics to major topics. There was a, it, it was, it was contiguous. It, it worked better that way than the, the dead documentary.
1: did. Yeah. And there were a lot more interviews in the Eagles documentary. And I found the interviews interesting. Like everyone. I owned Eagles albums in the 70s. Uh, I really liked the band and and I still listen to them every once in a while now. But I stopped listening to them after I left the states in 84, so I really had no idea what they'd done. I mean, I knew no they'd broken up before then, but then they got back together and all that. So it was interesting to fill in with all of the the early history that I didn't know about the stuff, the stuff with all the other singer-songwriters in Los Angeles, which, you know, was part of that what did they call that? California rock sound?
0: Yeah, the SoCal rock scene. Uh, the Eagles, uh, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, Warren Zevon, those people.
1: But but it was an interesting documentary, and of course it ends up with some sort of sort of a reunion concert, which seemed to be somewhat bittersweet because they weren't really friends and they kind of got back together. Like, And that's always a little bit strange when you get that sort of ex-husband, ex-wife thing together but it was it was nice to to see the history of this band.
0: It was interesting to find out that a band you think is very cohesive, very popular, very wealthy, and yet they don't get along. They treat the band as a business and and it's it's kind of shocking whenever you see that but uh, because you don't think of it that way. you think of everybody's like the Beatles they're all buddies, and they all want to you know play and, and make music, but the Eagles were strictly a, a a very corporate band. Um, you know, that's why there's so many interviews with them because they were so popular. They were everywhere. But they these guys wanted to make it big. I mean, one of the things that I remember about it too is Glenn Frey was being an SOB about I'm going to be famous and, and that's all there is to it. And he was willing to do a lot of things to remain famous. He was. But um, History of the Eagles, it's a good documentary.
1: So one of the problems with documentaries like this is that they tend to be organized by the subject. So if the subject is still alive, like in the Eagles, the the band, the artist has input into the way the documentary is organized. And, And this, of course, means that it can't be truly objective. Now, one of the most interesting music documentaries I know of is incredibly subjective. It's No Direction Home, the Martin Scorsese film about Bob Dylan. You see a lot of old footage. You see interviews with Bob. You see some concert footage and all that. And it, it it's just the early years up until his motorcycle accident in 1966. But when you see those interviews in the film, Bob Dylan is talking to someone off camera that someone is not Martin Scorsese. That is his manager, Jeff Rosen. They wrote the questions very specifically. They filmed them. I think Scorsese wasn't even there when this was done. So Dylan really had a lot of input into the way this was structured, into into what was covered and what wasn't covered.
0: Those interviews with Dylan, or whatever they are, those monologues, are pretty fascinating. They are. I mean, mean, whether they're true or substantive or anything. For what he says, for what he doesn't say, for the way he says it. Exactly.
1: he's, He's the perpetual
0: trickster. Exactly. And so you don't know. If you know, then you can kind of take it with a grain of salt and enjoy it. If you don't know, then he might be misleading you. So it's uh, but it is interesting if you if you're into Dylan. If you're not into Dylan, I don't know if you're going to find it that interesting, frankly.
1: Well, my partner watched it with me once, and she found it interesting. She doesn't particularly care for Dylan. She's seen him twice since we've been together, but she found it interesting to just to learn this, you know, this few years of his history. One thing that I always find interesting every time I put it on is that logo that comes up when it starts. It's the Apple logo. Oh, that's right. That was one of their early
0: excursions into media.
1: It's the first film that Apple was ever involved in as a producer. And it's because Steve Jobs was a fan of Dylan. I think they became friends or something. And yeah, Apple was involved with this, so it's it it opens up and you get the Apple logo there.
0: Maybe we'll see it on their uh, on their video service sometime soon. Huh? That would be nice.
1: Good point. There, I'll link to this on Amazon. There was an expanded version that was released a while ago, and you know what? I haven't even bought it yet.
0: I'm flabbergasted.
1: I think there was another forty minutes of footage, but it just the reviews just didn't make it sound that good. One one thing that's interesting about the Dylan documentary is that when it was released, this was in two thousand five there was a soundtrack album that was released with it. And it was one of Dylan's bootleg series. So the bootleg series is live tracks and B-sides and outtakes and and all that. And there were a number of really good songs on there that had never been released. Some that were later released, the, the Whitmark demos, some of the early things. But a couple of performances that were only released last year with the Cutting Edge box set. Some of the Highway 61 revisited, like an alternate version of... Desolation row, which is just extraordinary, which up until that time wasn't um in circulation uh,
0: another really good documentary I thought on Netflix, and I think it's still available, is called the wrecking crew and it's about the largely unknown unless you were clued into it uh, the largely unknown studio musicians that formed what they called the wrecking crew, and these guys were they were on so many recordings in the sixties and the seventies from the Beach Boys to the Jackson Five to virtually any hit you heard generally had the wrecking crew on it and the wrecking crew had a lot of famous people in it people like leon russell glenn campbell dr john was part of the wrecking crew so many great musicians um it's just fascinating now this documentary was put together by the son of uh one of the more uh i think he was a drummer uh in the crew and his he wanted he wanted people to know that these great musicians were on All the uh, all the music that they created because they were done anonymously. And it's really surprising. For instance, I think Smile is essentially Brian Wilson and the Wrecking Crew. The rest of the Beach Boys are only on it for vocals, but all the music is played by the Wrecking Crew. And it's really interesting to to hear about these people uh, who most most of whom regular people haven't heard about.
1: It's only the people who read the credits on record albums that that know this sort of thing. Um, But you mentioned Leon Russell, and and he was a studio musician for a long time, and then he started having a solo career in the 70s. Glenn Campbell is interesting because in the early days, he was a studio musician, and then he developed his own career. I watched 15 minutes of it, and I just didn't like it. Really? I I found it boring, yeah.
0: Well, it's not very glamorous, but it has information about the sorts of musicians that I liked. I mean, I liked hearing about how these hits were made and how these songs were made. And I like the musicians.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not particularly, yeah. Uh, the music, the kind of music that they recorded is not the music that's that important to me.
0: Yeah, it's mostly inside baseball stuff on, uh, you know, generally pop music. That's generally what they did.
1: Well, I like pop music, but it's not that kind of pop music that I like. Sure. So let's go back into the past again for some older documentaries. How about Gimme Shelter? Isn't that a classic?
0: Well, to me, Gimme Shelter is the rock documentary that all others are measured against. And it's probably also in my top five favorite movies of all time. I originally saw it on television. When it was first allowed to be on television, a local station ran it at midnight. Heavily edited because there's nudity and drug references and things like that in it. But I wanted to see it because of the Rolling Stones. I didn't care about Altamont so much. I just wanted to see the live footage of the Stones. And I recorded it on a cassette deck when I was like 13 or 14 years old and continuously listened to it, so I had it virtually memorized. But A Gimme Shelter is an example of one of those documentaries I talked about where there is no narrative except the one created by the editors of the film. The footage is all contemporaneously shot. It's uh, uh, radio and TV, audio and video, and it's put together in such a way that it, it tells a fascinating story of this part of the 1969 Rolling Stones tour it opens with them in in uh, in Madison Square Garden, which is why the Rolling Stones wanted the Maisels brothers to to uh, document it. But then the Maisels became so infatuated with the Stones they asked if they could hang out with them through the rest of the tour, and that got them. Uh, in, involved in the Altamont free concert. Well, it was supposed to be the Golden Gate free concert, but San Francisco didn't really want to have anything to do with hippies and music anymore. So it's, it's fascinating to see how, how difficult it is to put together a free concert. And, you know, using these megastars, uh, the the impetus behind the, co- the, the show was the Jefferson Airplane, the Grateful Dead, and the Rolling Stones. And trying to put this thing together on the cheap, totally not the way to put on a free concert. But it is a fascinating film.
1: And this brings us back to Sam Cutler, who was the Rolling Stones tour manager at the time and who was responsible for this. The Grateful Dead were supposed to perform, but I think they skipped out before... They they saw what was going on and they and they hightailed it out of there.
0: There's actually a scene where they land by helicopter. That's right. At the scene yeah. at the at the location and they're informed that this place is mayhem. There's nothing. The security is terrible. The crowd control is terrible. The stage is at the bottom of a hill. Yeah, you're going to be level with the the audience. And they said, "Well, we we can't do this. This is crazy." And and if you watch the footage, you can see. I mean. The the bands are playing right there in the middle of the crowds, and they just keep getting closer and closer. And then the Hells Angels element comes in later, and it just evolves into chaos. Fascinating. It's really just a fascinating documentary. And like I said, no narrative, just the story that's told with the film.
1: Yeah. And, And we can contrast that with Woodstock. Not the the film Woodstock, but the the, the actual festival where the stage was relatively high, barriers around it, barriers to keep people from going backstage. And and Woodstock was in August and this was December of the same year. So at Altamont, they should have learned from that.
0: Well, also remember... Altamont was a free concert. True. Tickets to get into Woodstock were $3. Right, but then they, it became free after the first 50,000 people. Once they covered security and parking and things like that. In in San Francisco, the problem was that no nobody wanted to take this on without some kind of secure money. And... When you do a free concert, that means people aren't getting paid, and when people aren't getting paid, they really don't want to do the job. So they didn't have proper security. They didn't have um, a decent um, stage management. They didn't, like you say, there was no barrier between the stage and the audience like there was at Monterey Pop or, or Woodstock. You can obviously see that the musicians are well away from the audience. This just was a colossal failure.
1: Well, i link in the show notes to a book that Sam Cutler wrote about The Grateful Dead, and he talks about this, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, they had to move the location at the last minute as well. So there everything just went wrong and and they should have known that something was going to happen. There was just bad vibes and and I even remember I can't recall what it was, but there was something the day before there was like an omen that people were really freaked out about and it turned out to be like that. In a way it kind of crystallized around the bad boy reputation that the Rolling Stones were cultivating.
0: Oh, sure, they loved it.
1: Yeah, but they weren't
0: really that bad boy, were they? They were hanging out in these big country houses in England. And The worst thing you see is Mick Jagger trying to calm the crowd down like he's a third grade school teacher. Yeah, And then Keith gets so upset that he says, hey, if these cats don't stop beating each other up, we're going to leave. Yeah. I mean, that's crowd control? Yeah, threatening to leave and,
1: and all these people who are high and drunk and who made this trek to get to the concert, they're not going to be happy. Let's change register a little bit. When we were preparing this a few weeks ago, I was saying we need to have some classical music documentaries. And there are thousands of classical music documentaries, and they are broadcast on, I guess, PBS in the States or Sky here in the UK. There's a Franco-German channel called Arte that does films and music and stuff, and There's another channel called Mezzo in Europe that is only classical and jazz concerts, ballets, documentaries, operas, and all that. So there's a huge production of these things, and you get lots of documentaries. If you buy a DVD of an opera, there's always like a 45-minute documentary, either about the composer, the opera, the making of, or whatever. Most of them are just cookie-cutter documentaries made to make a performer look good and, and, and made to look like there's something extra on the DVD. So, I really fished around in my memory, and I could only find one documentary that stands out in my mind, and it's called Bach, A Passionate Life. It was, well, it's made by the BBC, but it was narrated and written by John Elliot Gardner, who had just written a biography of Johann Sebastian Bach. And so, Gardner is a conductor. Most of the music he's been performing in, in the last few decades is Bach vocal music, cantatas, and passions, and all of that. The most interesting thing is about three minutes into the documentary. You see this painting of, of Bach, and it's this painting of him with the wig and the, the, the florid cheeks and all that. You, you see it on one out of every 20 album covers of Bach records. And he's talking about this painting, and he says, Yes, my parents owned this when I was young, and I used to walk up the stairs and walk by this all the time. And you see how immersed this man was in the music of Bach. Then it gets into sort of standard documentary territory. Okay, a little bit of biography, and then here we are rehearsing a thing we're performing in someplace in Germany, and here's someone who's playing a thing, and then another rehearsal, and then a clip from a live performance. So it, it falls into a mold of classical music documentaries. But I would say that the the BBC, most BBC documentaries tend to be these first-person documentaries where the narrator is on screen, rather than being off to the side. And a lot of times it doesn't work, but here it works very well because Gardner has this long experience from when he was a child being around this famous painting to growing up with this music. It's about 90 minutes long. I'll link to it on YouTube where it has been posted illegally, so it might not be there for long. But it it is one of the more fascinating classical music documentaries I've seen.
0: It it is true. They are few and far between. There aren't that many jazz documentaries really either. Now, one I haven't seen is the one on Thelonious Monk. I thought I had seen it. Uh, have you seen Straight No Chaser?
1: No, I haven't.
0: It, we, it, it's on the list we
1: made, and I never got around to looking it up. This is a documentary that was made in 1988. It was produced by Clint Eastwood, directed by Charlotte Zwerin, and it has some live performances, and it has interviews, and, and I haven't seen it. So,
0: Well, I just, I just want to say, coincidentally, Charlotte Guerin is one of the people who put together Gimme Shelter. She used to work with the Ells brothers. So it, there's, some, there's some cred there. Okay. Here's a fairly recent documentary that I have seen called The Beatles, Eight Days a Week The Touring Years. I think I've seen virtually every Beatles documentary because I'm I'm ultimately fascinated by them, not because of their music so much, but uh I, I appreciate the Beatles as a phenomenon. And this movie, directed by Ron Howard, uh goes into how rigorously they toured in the early years before they gave up touring in nineteen sixty six to concentrate on recording. This movie was able to get some previously unreleased film of their Shea Stadium concert and remastered it and cleaned it up. And I think they also managed to find footage of tours in Australia and Asia. As Beatles documentaries go, it's quite good. Ringo and Paul filmed interviews for it. And we've talked about their live performances in the past. These were these were shows where they had to accommodate many thousands of people for the first time. And the no arena, no venue was prepared with adequate sound. I mean, for example, at Shea Stadium, they use the in-house PA system, which must have sounded terrible. I can just hear the organ playing. Exactly. They've got, I mean, (laughs) you've got a PA system designed for one voice to speak to three, four thousand people in the stadium, but it wasn't built to handle, you know, music reinforcement.
1: Hey, I've been to Shea Stadium many times. I grew up in Queens. And just when you get the announcements from just someone announcing during a game, the sound is so bad, I can't imagine music coming over that.
0: And it wasn't just the bad sound reinforcement. It was that they couldn't hear themselves. Getting into and out of these places with screaming teenagers was a hassle. It was just wearing them down. And they had a tremendously big tour schedule. I think they toured twice a year. And then, of course, they had obligations to be in the studio and release two albums and any number of singles a year. So they were constantly busy without any time off. By giving up the touring schedule, it enabled them to experiment more in the studio, spend more time in the studio. And if they hadn't given up the touring, it's quite possible that we wouldn't have had things like Rubber Soul and Revolver and, and Magical Mystery Tour and Sgt. Pepper and, and all of that stuff. Um, because you can definitely hear after 1966, they kind of went from the in-studio pop songs to, you know, these very elaborate uh, concept albums. So if you're a Beatles aficionado, you'll probably enjoy eight days a week.
1: One thing that's interesting is that this period, 62 to 66, is the exact same period as that Dylan film, because Dylan's accident was in 66, and that's when he stopped touring for many years. Now, the Dylan film starts with him growing up in in Minnesota, but it really focuses mostly um, when he gets to New York in 62 through 66, and it's the exact same period. I haven't seen this yet, and I keep saying I'm going to watch it, so I think I'm going to watch it later today. And it'll be interesting to see what relates between those two periods for the two bands.
0: Well, what's interesting is that they were both powerful enough um, sales-wise that they could abandon the road and take time off. A lot of bands couldn't do that. And of course, at that time, I don't think anybody imagined that there would eventually be arenas that not only accommodated hockey and baseball, but could also accommodate large rock concerts. That's It's
1: an interesting point you've just made. There was a a three-part BBC documentary that I saw a year or so ago called How the Brits Rocked America, Go West. And it's in three parts. The first is How the West Was Won. And this is when the British groups in the 60s, particularly the Beatles, were coming into the US. The second one is called Stairway to Heaven. And it really focuses on... The, the BBC website, which I'll link to, says How Led Zeppelin Spearheaded a British Stadium Rock Assault on the States in the 1970s. And it wasn't so much stadiums, but it was arenas. And when these British bands were popular enough to draw that type of crowds, this was when arenas started to be used for concerts. And this had a big effect on the concert landscape in the U.S. because American bands started doing that, too.
0: That's really interesting because where I'm from, Providence, Rhode Island, they built the Providence Civic Center in 1972 And one of the reasons they wanted to build it was because they wanted to lure uh, these large rock acts and music acts to the state. Otherwise, you'd have to go to Boston or Hartford to see a lot of them. And they also wanted to accommodate a lot more uh, sporting events, like they wanted to bring NCAA championships. But anyway, Frank Sinatra was one of the first people to play at the Providence Civic Center. And also the first year, uh, we had Pink Floyd come by. Did you see them? No, no, I didn't. Um, Nor did I see Led Zeppelin. They were also one of the the first acts to play there.
1: When we get to part three of this series, we'll talk about the Led Zeppelin film. song remains the same and a lot of other concert films that we like. But I think we're about out of time. I think if we keep going on like this, our listeners will get bored. So leave us a note in the comments if you have any favorite documentaries on any kind of music. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Next Track.
0: Hold on, hold on. We're not done yet. It is time to present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you listening to?
1: So I bought some music today. I bought some downloaded music today. I haven't bought downloaded music in a long time. Here's the thing. You know, Bruce Springsteen is doing that four-month run of shows on Broadway, right? There were reviews in the news today of the first shows, and there were some very good reviews and some very bad reviews, which was interesting. And that made me pull out Bruce's album, The Ghost of Tom Jode, one of my favorite Bruce Springsteen albums. It's it's an acoustic album, acoustic in air quotes, because there's some slide guitar and some synthesizer and all that. And then I was thinking, you know, he toured for a while doing an acoustic tour, and Was any of that released? So I did a little Wikipedia searching and I found that he did release one concert which he sells from his website. It wasn't released on CD. It was in Belfast, Northern Ireland on March 1996. And I dropped $12.95 to get Apple lossless files. This concert's about two hours, 20 minutes long, 23 songs. And it's got everything from The Ghost of Tom Joad to Born in the USA to Streets of Philadelphia, but it doesn't have Born to Run or Thunder Road or any of those big hits. And and I'm really looking forward to hearing this. I listened to just a few seconds of samples on the website first. The sound is really great. And in this, it was really just him playing guitar and harmonica with someone named Kevin Buell playing electronic keyboard uh, to back him up. So that's what I'm going to be listening as soon as we wrap up today, Doug. What about you?
0: Well, you know, I mentioned Gimme Shelter uh, during the episode and that got me thinking... I really should listen to Get Your Yayas Out Again. That's the live album that the Rolling Stones put out that was recorded at Madison Square Garden during that first leg of the 1969 tour. It's one of my favorite live albums. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. It's the first album that I got by the Rolling Stones that I, was, I really became enamored with them. I, I hadn't really put together the Rolling Stones sound. I mean, when I was a kid, it's hard to figure out what, under My Thumb and Get Off Of My Cloud and, and and songs of that ilk are about. And then you come to this very rockin' album that a friend of mine turned me on to. And I really liked it. I think the only song I knew on it, I was vaguely familiar with Honky Tonk Women. and They do a tremendous... Uh, live version of Honky Tonk Women on it. But this is the first album uh that really turned me on to the Rolling Stones. Um it's raw. It's not a great recording. It's very muddy in some of the parts. In fact Ian Stewart, who is of course the sixth Rolling Stone and plays piano for the Stones in a lot of those earlier albums, uh is is buried in the mix on some of the Chuck Berry songs and some of the more raucous songs that he plays on. About the best dynamic in the album on the on the album is that, well, There's Mick Taylor on the left, and there's Keith Richards on the right, and everything else is just kind of mud in the middle. But it is still a really good performance. And uh, I guess they did about as good of a job as they could recording it. There are no overdubs or anything like that, but you can definitely hear like little EQ fixes here and there if you listen really carefully. It was remastered uh, not so long ago, maybe five or six years ago, when they came out with a a, a remastered version of Gimme Shelter. So Rolling Stones Records obviously saw this as an opportunity to re-release and remaster Get Your ya Out. Like I said, the performances are quite good and quite rockin', and I don't think they've ever done a live album as good as this unless you consider the third side of Love You Live, the El Macambo side where they're performing in a, in a small club uh, as sounding as spontaneous and as refreshing as this. As I said, the recording is not great, but the performances are awesome. So The Rolling Stones' Get Your yayas Out is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.